witnessed their marriage yesterday. Um, and they're in church today, y'all. What's up with that? <laughs> so congratulations. Um, Ten years together already, and yesterday it became legal and holy and sacred. Um, and so good to see you and to have celebrated that with you. And how fitting that you get to come <laughs> on, this, on this week. Friends, so, and also uh, Enoch made mention of the kids. Uh, just by coincidence, um, you will notice that there are no parents or kids in here today. Well, except for Ellie, who does only knows a few words, right? Um, they are, uh, today is the launch of Godly Play, and um, so it's the launch of our Sunday school. So all the parents, our children, are in the Sunday school room, Kids Church, and they're learning about this new curriculum, and they're getting to explore it. So um, you'll see them running around at some point but they are not in the service today. So I have a friend, and she was raised in um, a conservative Christian church. She describes going to these rallies, uh, these many rallies that um, encouraged her in her quest to keep her virginity until marriage. I think they were called True Love Waits, if you guys have heard of that. Um, and uh, she even had this like purity ring that she and her boyfriend both wore. Um, it was an outward reminder that um, she promised to not have sex with her boyfriend until they were free. Um, my, my friend, now, you know, 15 years later, is married. Uh, she's married to a woman. So uh, the quest to not have sex with her boyfriend, um, that was easy for her to uphold. Um, I don't think it was the ring that did it for her. Um, but it, it was easy for her um, to do that. Uh, did any of you guys wear those rings or have those? Yes, um, and it may not, um, some of the people I see raising their hand, it probably might not have been as easy um, as my friend to, to keep that pledge, or maybe you did keep that, didn't keep that pledge and the shame that you felt um, because of it. Um, many of us have been told uh, from a young age that sex is scary, that sex is going to change things in your relationship, and it will damage you. So you shouldn't do it, right? You need to just wait till you're married to do that. Um, and many of us, um, as we've gotten older and perhaps broken that purity vow that we took, have tried to make meaning out of it. And so then we've said, uh, you know, let's just throw it all out, right? Like, um, let's throw out any, anything goes. You know, if, if I can't keep this purity culture thing that's been going on, anything will go. Whatever happens is fine. But the problem is when we do that, uh, when we leave one sort of uh, formation behind and don't work to create a new ethic, the shame just follows us along, right? We, um, even though we say we've left that one culture behind, there's still things that um, come in the back of our head that, um, that tell us that we're not worthy, that tell us that we should be ashamed of our behavior, that tell us that we're sinful, um, and so what we want to do over the next five weeks in this sermon series called Some Like It Hot, <laughs> what we want to do over these next five weeks is help to craft a healthy sexual ethic. We want to talk about healing and dating and uh, relationships and sex, and we want to explore what it means to really love our bodies, what it means to love another person and what it means to love God and see how all of those interconnect together. So at the end of these five weeks, I hope that you will have crafted 
a sexual ethic that's not based on just throwing something out and doing anything goes, but that allows you to have clarity about who you are and whose you are and what it means to be in deep relationship with another person. Um, this week we are broadly framing um, sex and talking a little bit about desire. Um, next week we're going to be looking more uh, closely about what it, what, how our culture shapes desire, how our cultural influences shape what we desire and who we desire. Um, in the weeks ahead, we're going to explore sexual violence and what, how that plays into sex. Um, we're going to look about how, uh, what it means to date in the era of Tinder and Grindr, because um, it's real, right? And um, finally, in the last week, we'll look at what it means to stick it out in a covenant relationship with one person. There is so much to pack into these five weeks. Um, so I hope that you can come every week. I hope you can bring friends because I know y'all are talking about this, right? So we might as well be talking about it in church. Um, and know that we are in the midst of exploring a scary and sacred and hilarious and humiliating topic, sex. Uh, the first thing I'm going to say is that our American culture has a very healthy, under, un, very unhealthy understanding of sex. We are the product of a society um, that we live in, so it is no wonder that we're all trying to figure out what spirituality and sexuality all have to do with one another. So I want um, to kind of play fun and, and look at, you know, um, Middle America. I'm going to invite you to watch this clip from uh, Parks and Recreation so we can see what's going on with uh, sex education in, is it Swanee, Indiana? Pawnee, Indiana.
video points to some of the issues that we have um, in America and some of the issues that we have in the first that we discussed in assumption that there's something shameful that we shall keep talking about the burden. and the whales. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day. There's a biologist, um, she's called an acoustical biologist named Katie Payne. And she, she's retired at the moment, but for like 50 years she studied animals as a biologist. And uh, she, many years ago, was uh, studied whales. She studied whales for like 32 years. And over at, at the beginning of her study, they noticed that whales were actually emitting these noises that they realized the whales were singing. They were singing songs to each other. And as she began to study the songs that the whales were singing, she realized that the songs changed based on the interactions with the whales. Like they, they were responding to each other in song, right? She called it evolutionary uh, biology, I think. Uh, they, they would respond to each other. So she studied whales for like 32 years, and then uh, she was at a conference, and um, she heard that there was a zoo that had three new baby elephants, and so she said, oh, can I go watch the baby elephants, sort of on a whim. And for, she got permission from the zoo, and for a week, she, she just observed these elephants and the, the family around it. Um, she noticed that when she was around the elephants, she could feel a popping in her ear. You guys are all like, what does this have to do with sex? I'll get there. She could feel this popping in her ear, and, and it, wasn't, it didn't happen when she was around the other animals. So she um, realized that they were also singing songs, but just at a frequency that was lower than the humans had the capacity to hear. And so for the next you know, decade, she studied the songs of elephants, singing to each other, singing at the joy of birth, singing um, as they were wooing each other in romance, you know, in this, like, we, we, we think. And, and I think what I found fascinating about this is you know, we talk about birds and crickets that chirp and sing. And we're like, oh yeah, it's like some sort of mating ritual, and we get it. But when I heard the story that mammals, we're mammals, right? That mammals, like elephants and whales, sing. That they sing and shape one another, that, they, that it is part of this elaborate mating ritual. Um, it made me think of the songs we sing. We sing love songs to another. How, how many of you guys have been in love? Okay, I know. I remember the first time I fell in love. I all the love songs that were on the radio, 
I realized they were true. <laughs> right? And I couldn't help but just keep seeing. We call this in love, it's really like becoming sexually attracted to someone, and then when that person returns and they too are sexually attracted to us, like then we start, you know, like that's falling in love. But at its basic level, we are singing these songs, just like the whales and dolphins, like love songs to each other. Isn't that incredible? And then I think about our scripture passage today, which comes from the book called The Song of Songs. So it is the penultimate song, right? This is this song. This is not like a, a lament song. This is not a song of, of um, uh, I don't know, care for a child. This is a love song, a song of desire. It is the song of songs. And we as humans have the capacity, the ability to sing this song, the ultimate song of love. This is why I love this book. And Ellen and I were talking, I, I don't spend a lot of time with it, but then when I dig into it, I'm like, this is beautiful. Why do we not talk about this more? Listen to this line now. You think about this as the ultimate love song. Oh, you are beautiful, my love. Oh, you are beautiful. Your eyes are dove. Oh, you are beautiful. Truly lovely. Pharaoh Williams, he could... That lyric, or he could set music to that lyric, and we'd all be singing it, wouldn't we? It is a love song, the song of songs. And this is part of our canon of scripture. This is a holy book. So you see, we as Christians, we as people of the Old Testament and um, the Hebrew scriptures, we have not always been tortured about sex and sexuality. You can see that that is a recent war on sex that we have. Now there's a couple things I want to, we're not going to be, through the course of this sermon series, we're not going to be dwelling in the Song of Songs. Um, it would be really cool, and so I want to give you some really cool information about this particular book, and maybe it will allow you to dive into it deeper. Um, there's lots of really interesting things about this book. Um, the first thing that I find really interesting is that the main voice, the, the voice that has the most, um, I think it's something like 56 verses in this um, book of Song of Songs, is a woman's voice. The, the male's voice has something like 32 verses or something like that. that. Those are not right numbers, but you get that kind of ratio. So it's a woman's voice. Um, it's a black woman's voice. We don't read the scripture, but it, um, she talks about her beautiful black skin. So I think uh, this is as an aside, but in a culture where we... Um, we often have imagery of, of black skin not being images of beauty. This is, this is scriptural, y'all. Beautiful, dark skin. So what do we make that um, the majority of the lines are a woman? And that, um, interestingly enough, this woman, she is uninhibited by her sexual desire. Like, um, you know, in, in other passages of, of the Bible, we see women. They're never in the first-person voice like this, but we see them made in, um, into the prim and proper women or objects of men's desire. But in this Bible, in, the, in, in this scripture passage, which is in the Bible, a woman's voice, if she is, she is sharing her desire, she is assertive, she is uninhibited, and that's scripture. It's in scripture. Isn't that kind of cool? 
listen, uh, listen to a couple lines. She says, let, me, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. That's, that's one of the lines we read today. In a culture where men and women never even touched, this idea of kissing each other, that is like the climax of sexual activity. And she's just stating it out there, isn't it? That's like really cool, right? This woman knows what she's want and she's not afraid. Uh, she knows what she wants and she's not afraid to ask. And she hasn't been shamed for it. I want to pause for just a minute and talk about women and shame in our culture. Uh, one of the critiques, I have lots of them, but one of the critiques that I, ha- I have of this purity is that it teaches women that, first of all, their goodness is caught up in their purity and their virginity. And then also, so they have to save themselves from marriage. Even it's a double standard, more so than excusable. But secondly, the minute that they are married, then it's like they have to flip a switch and become divorced. I mean, I've heard this. I've read this in some of the, like, so, so it's this weird dichotomy. And then further the critique I have is that it, it um, all of this is really just about the desire of men, about women being the object of men's desire, and never about what women desire. So this, this book is awesome, women. Can I get an amen for this book? Right? This book reminds us that we, too, are allowed to have desires, and that our desires are not contingent upon how men desire us. Uh, the last thing that I think is really interesting about this book is that God is not mentioned in it at all. Isn't that interesting? Now, uh, this is also true for the book of Esther. Um, but the book of Esther is a little different because it takes place and there's like, they have conversations about prayer and fasting. No prayer and fasting going on. Song of songs, y'all. Um, there's conversations about um, feast days and holidays. So you can sort of be like, well, this is, you know, this is like spiritual, religious, because they're talking about these sort of things. Related to religion or God or spirituality, well, it never says that. So we have to reflect on what does that mean? What do we do with that? That um, our scriptures, something that is part of our holy Bible, the canon of the Bible, um, has no mention of God, no mention of religious rituals, anything like that. As people of faith who, who practice the way of God in the incarnation, um, God with us, God who made the king flesh, um, I think it means that our desire and longing is part of who we are. That it is um, our longing and our desire for relationship with another person is it's what makes us human. And I think uh, that is a gift from God. Uh, one great writer, um, Frederick Buechner, and I'm going to talk about him in a minute as well. He's, he's great all over. He uh, said it this way, Our hunger to know a person sexually is our hunger to know and be known by that person. This is the kind of God who made us. I want to say that again because it's a beautiful statement. Our hunger to know a person sexually is our hunger to know 
and be known humanly. It's part of who we are. It's part of what God created us to be. So sex then is not about purity or shame or liberation or freedom. It's about knowing someone deeply and intimately and allowing them to know you. Which can be freeing, it can be liberating, but that's not the purpose of sex. Sex then is grace. We often uh, talk about God loving us and desiring us as grace, right? Hopefully you've heard me say that before, that God loves us and desires us, and that's grace. Um, and that that grace transforms us. And sex has the capacity to do that same thing to be loved and desired by another person, to love and desire another person, that changes us. So it has to be grace, it has to be a gift from God. Even if the Song of Songs doesn't say that, I think we have to infer that as we So what does a healthy sexual relationship look like? We're going to be talking about this over and over. You're not going to get the answers today. Um, You've got to come back. <laughs> but I want to begin to give you some questions so that you can uh, begin to practice for yourself over the next five weeks. These are questions that we will visit and revisit. Um, and so I want to throw them up on the screen today one by one. Uh, the first question is, what do I desire and why do I desire that? For some... Um, We've spent years and years repressing our desires. Um, this is not a sermon on homosexuality, but I do want to say specifically that that is an area in which many people have tried over and over to repress that desire. You see Marshall Langdon up there, right? We have all these thoughts in our head. We have to say, go away. Um, but what I'm saying is actually, you know, you need to get in touch um, be you, yeah, whatever that might be. But, and then the question to follow up is, why do I desire that? And we're going to get into that more next week as we talk about how desires crafted and what society, how, how society wants to that. But that's, that's the first question. Um, so the next question is, um, and this is super important too because it gets at consent, what is my partner desire? So if I... Um, this gets at rape culture, right, and um, violence that's happened. So we're going to talk about that in the weeks ahead, too. But um, what does my partner desire? If we are desiring another person and they are desiring us, we need to be in deep conversation, right? And that intimacy that comes out of, out of, um, out of sex can't just be about the physical happiness. Uh, the second question is, what does God desire? I added a follow-up of what's healthy because I think particularly because some of us have come out of that conservative Christian framework, when you hear that question, what does God desire, it's really easy to be like, oh my gosh, purity, you know, and that's, that's not what we're talking about. Um, we're talking about what does God desire for us in general? Um, my short answer to that, you know, outside of sexuality, but that includes sexuality, but that, that God desires for you to live a joy-filled life. God desires for you to live a life where 
the gifts you are given um, come to fruition and where you can feel love and know love and be loved, right? Um, and so then now put your sexual ethic in that. What does God desire out of that? Um, the second, the fourth question is how do these desires intersect mine or not, right? There's probably going to be some tension there. And so to live into that. a lot here, folks, right? wish I had more time. I want to leave you today with a final thought by that really smart guy, Frederick Buechner. He has this lovely quote, and he says, contrary to Mrs. Grundy, which I had to look up Mrs. Grundy, but just insert Mrs. Marshall Langdon, Mrs. Marshall Langdon, you know, the prudish person, Mrs. Grundy, I guess, in like, pop culture. Uh, contrary to Mrs. Grundy, Sex is not sin. Contrary to Hugh Hefner, it is not salvation either. Like nitroglycerin, it can be used either to blow up bridges or heal hearts. Powerful image. As we uh, think about being bearers of something that can heal hearts and blow up so as you go forth today, know that your bodies, that in your bodies, God has gifted you with something as powerful as nitroglycerin. And it can allow us to know others and to be known, which is beautiful. It can also cause devastating harm to yourself. Welcome the gift. Expect to be graced and expect to be transformed, and expect God to delight in your delight.